Well, good morning, and thank you for the warm welcome. It's not any cooler here than it is in Manchester by the sea, where my wife and I live. Um, left the house at about 5:35 this morning. Had a nice, easy drive down here uh, today, and so good to be back with you again. The last time I was with you was for the hybrid ordination installation service for Pastor Mike. Uh, It's good to be back. Thank you for your support of Mission Northeast, which is your regional association of churches, which numbers about 225 congregations in New England and New York State. Um, It's been my privilege to serve in this role in a part-time capacity for almost seven years now. Um, We are committed to helping every church that invites us to come alongside to take their next bold steps. And if we can continue to be of service to you, we certainly uh, want to do that. Um, I just began my fourth intentional interim pastorate in the end of July, and uh, so that's what I, how I fill out some of the rest of my time. Mondays I spend with my two grandsons, who are four and two going on eight, and uh, then the rest of the time I'm working uh, for the church and for Mission Northeast. I also do um, a lot of volunteer work in the area of critical incident stress management uh, for law enforcement and for firefighters and EMS personnel uh, as well. So uh, life's very full, very satisfying, very, very rewarding. Uh, Let's take a moment just to commit this time and the word together to to the Lord. Our Father, now we come to your word today and um, ask that you by your spirit will tend to the needs of our hearts, indeed to our relationships, uh, as we think about what you are to us, what you've done for us, what you provide for us through your Son, Jesus, our Savior. In Christ's name, amen. When John Wesley was a missionary in Georgia, uh, Governor James Oglethorpe discovered that one of his slaves had stolen a jug of wine and consumed its contents. Oglethorpe wanted the man thoroughly beaten. And when John Wesley heard of it, he went to plead on behalf of the slave. And the governor said, I want vengeance. I never forgive. To which John Wesley responded, I hope to God, sir, you never sin. Mercy in some quarters is not an admirable trait. It wasn't in Wesley's day, and it certainly was not in the day of the ancient world of Jesus' day. To show mercy to another was to display a weakness of the mind. Mercy was, in the view of some, what you might call a disease of the soul. Slaves were viewed as little more than flesh and blood, and if they broke down, they could be trashed and tossed out on the scrap heap, much as you might dispose of a tired and worn-out lawnmower. Babies born crippled might very well be left out to be exposed to the elements and to left to die. And enemies, 
Well, the only good enemy was a dead enemy. And so we are confronted head-on with this statement of Jesus, tucked away in the middle of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. And I'd invite you to turn there with me if you haven't already. It's Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes um, pick up at verse 2. And I'm going to take a moment just to read them, but our focus will be on verse 7, the middle Beatitude. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, the disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in spirit, or pure in heart, for they shall see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We do well to gain some clarity as best we can in understanding what mercy does not mean. For one thing, mercy is not to be defined as simply easygoing and letting bygones be bygones. It's not to overlook offenses or smile at transgressions and law-breaking. Christian doesn't say, what does it matter? Let's carry on. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that very thing. He said, it's not to be a flabby kind of person, easygoing, easy to get on with, for whom it does not matter whether laws are broken or not, who is not concerned about keeping them. It most certainly would not entertain the notion, let's let bygones be bygones. But I'd like you to to be reminded if you don't if you're not aware of this already that when God discloses himself and his character in terms of his traits the very first attribute by which he reveals himself and by which he self describes is is with mercy way back in his encounter with Moses in chapter 34 and verse 36 God speaks of his own character to him, and it's it's the very first attribute by which he chooses to describe himself. That raises a question. What trait would you choose to describe yourself, first of all? More than that, what trait would another person who knows you exceedingly well What trait would they say, first of all, describes you? Would it be mercy? We'd do well to take a moment just to pause and survey the landscape of these Beatitudes. They are structured very intentionally. 
The first four Beatitudes that we've read leading up to this statement by Jesus on mercy expresses in one way or another our dependence on God. That is, our Godward disposition, how we view ourselves in light of of who he is. The next three Beatitudes direct us to give attention to the outworking of this dependence upon God. So another way of thinking about it is that the first set of, the first grouping of Beatitudes speak to us about our disposition toward God, our position before him. And, and then secondly, as you move through into the second half of the Beatitudes, it's, it's largely about our disposition towards people. And mercy is at the very center of this. It's the pivot point from, that moves us from our need to our actions and speaks of a, a voracious appetite for righteousness and right relationships with others. So what is mercy? Mercy demonstrates itself in two different directions. First of all, mercy is to be merciful towards the miserable, that those towards those who are in extraordinarily difficult and challenging circumstances. Many years ago when our family was um, in Colorado, we'd gone out for me to officiate the wedding of a dear friend of ours, the daughter of friends of ours, and um, we took some time to take an excursion down to the center of Denver and and so my wife and I and our six-year-old son, Scott, and older daughter, Lauren, who was eight at the time, uh, we traveled the light rail to downtown Denver. Scotty was sitting to my left and next to the window, and I looked over and I saw that tears were streaming down my son's face. And at first I didn't understand why, and then I saw what he saw. For the first time in his life, he saw a homeless man sleeping within, within, within a large appliance cardboard container. Scotty understood what he was seeing, and he was feeling that emotion. It was an emotion of mercy, of compassion for this homeless figure whom he did not know this man who was curled up under the protective covering of a large cardboard box, sleeping. Well, it's one thing, that's an important element of of mercy, to have compassion for those who are caught up in miserable circumstances. But mercy does not stop with emotion. Mercy acts. Now, in that very moment... We didn't have the capacity to stop and and bring aid to that particular individual. But a very few months later, um, I took um, my son Scott on another train ride. From our home in Manchester-by-the-Sea, we we took the Metro Boston Transit System train into the heart of Boston, and I took Scott to... uh, a ministry center called the Kingston House. 
And there Scott joined me side by side, and, and we provided meals. We served up meals to, to men and women who had come out of the cold and into the warmth of the shelter to find lodging and a hot meal uh, for the night. You see, mercy doesn't stop with emotion. Mercy continues with action on behalf of others that are in need. There are many ways in which churches uh, practice mercy. Many churches across the country and around the world participate in Operation Christmas Child. There are those who commit themselves to fostering and even adopting children, maybe a Thanksgiving food drive. Uh, the church where I most recently have begun serving is Interim, um, developed a mercy team, and its sole focus is to help a family from Afghanistan to be assimilated into our culture and to find uh, housing and, and employment. You see, mercy has a compa- component of emotion, but it also moves on to take action in order to minister to others. George Hunter, in his book, Apostolic Congregations, uh, tells the story of his colleague, Bob Tuttle, who was reading his Bible on the plane. And uh, this gentleman asked Bob Tuttle, uh, sitting next to him and observing he was reading his Bible, he, he said to Bob Tuttle, do you want to know why I joined the church? He said, I was working on a project in Anchorage, Alaska, and I decided to visit a church on on one Sunday. And I noticed a well-dressed, middle-aged lady sitting several rows ahead of me on the aisle. And then my eye caught hold of a, a young man who appeared to be homeless, looking rather bedraggled, who entered the church, and, and he walked down the aisle, and the woman turned and, and saw him and, and invited him to come and sit with her, and, and she she slid over a seat. The young man went and sat next to her. They laughed a bit and smiled. They shared a hymnal and eventually a Bible. And they were singing together. And Bob Tuttle observed all of this going on. And at the conclusion of the service, they, they stood up. And the woman took out a bill from her pocketbook. And, and she gave it to the young man and bid him goodbye. Bob Tuttle said, I I went to her afterwards and said, I just really enjoyed seeing you interacting with your son. And the woman said to him, I've never seen him before in my life. Bob Tuttle went home, realizing that the young man was not her son. He said, I called my wife and I said, we're moving to Anchorage. I've finally found a church that practices what it preaches. Mercy not only has a component of emotion to it, mercy also acts intentionally. But mercy doesn't stop with exercising compassion toward those who are caught up in some kind of circumstantial misery. It also shows itself in extending forgiveness to people, to those who've offended us, to those who've sinned against us. You will recall Peter's question to, math, uh, to Jesus in Matthew 18, won't you? 
How many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Seven times seven, and then pow, we let him have it? No, not even on the eighth time. How you live and what you do is the surest sign of the state of your heart. What I do and say is the surest indication of my own of my own heart. You see, the mercy of God and forgiveness of sins becomes the experiences of a poverty-stricken spirit. Jesus said, first of all, blessed are those who, more, who are poor in spirit. That is, when we recognize how spiritually bankrupt we are, we move to a state of mourning and grieving over our sinfulness before God. And in turn, it moves us to a place where we do gain a a voracious appetite for living well in relationship with, with other men and women. Kenyon Scudder was a West Coast prison warden who told this story many years ago about about the prison he served in. It was a story about a small-town Oklahoma boy who had deeply embarrassed his family by committing such crimes that he was imprisoned. The young man's parents were basically illiterate. He wrote on occasion, but he never heard back from his parents. Finally, the big day came when he was, he was going to be released from his imprisonment. He was going to be set free and he could re-enter the world. He could return home, maybe. He wrote one last letter to his parents to simply let them know he was about to be released and he was going to take the train home. And as it so happened, the train passed by his parents' home, his home. So he simply said to them, if you will welcome me back home, would you, would you tie a white ribbon to the tree in the backyard so that I'll know that you're willing to receive me and welcome me home. Well, he traveled on the train and approached the home, his home where he'd been raised and where he had lived and where his parents still resided. And he grew more and more anxious, not knowing what the answer would be. Would there be a white ribbon that would, that he could see tied to the tree in the yard? He became so anxious and nervous about it that he actually moved to the other side of, uh, of the train car. And he asked a fellow passenger to look out the window for him. As they approached uh, the property of his parents and the backyard, the, the passenger said, Look! Look! He opened his eyes and he looked out the window and he saw not one white ribbon, but a whole tree covered in white ribbons. He knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was welcome home. Have you not at times ever felt 
that way about your relationship with God? Have you never been caught up in amazement that God has hung out a whole tree full of white ribbons for you? That God not only has felt a compassion of mercy toward you, but he's also acted in order that you might experience his mercy, his forgiveness. There have all been times when we have disappointed God and, and we've asked of him, can you possibly forgive me? But you're desperate in need and so you, you journey homeward. Even coming to the place of worship, when you've had a week when you know that you've disappointed God in things that you've said and that you have done, God, can you possibly forgive me? But before you even see your Heavenly Father, your eyes take in the vision of another tree. It's the tree of Calvary. It's the tree of Calvary that's covered in white ribbons, as it were, a tree that's shaped in the form of a cross. So whenever we see white ribbons hung for us, we, we hang out white ribbons ourselves wherever we go for the benefit of others. I wish I had this morning a, a white ribbon, uh, white ribbons in a basket for you to just simply come forward and say, yes, I'll take a white ribbon and, and pin it to my lapel or to my shirt or my blouse to say, I know that I have benefited from the mercy of God toward me and his love for me and his acts on my behalf. And, and I want to show, I want to demonstrate that I'm a child of that Heavenly Father as well and that I bear that family trait of extending, of feeling and extending mercy to others. When we show mercy to others, we demonstrate that we belong to the Heavenly Father's family and that we're citizens of the Heavenly Kingdom. So let me just ask you these questions for application. What would your life be right now, today, if you had never experienced God's mercy? If you'd never received his forgiveness earned for you by Jesus on the cross? Secondly, do you know someone who's in misery? It could be financial misery. It could be a relational misery. It could be due to any number of circumstances. Can you, in mercy, do something to meet that particular need? That is, not only to feel, to have compassion, but actually do something that's tangible in nature. Thirdly, and this is where the preacher moves from preaching to meddling, how well are you doing in forgiving others? Is there a grudge? Is there a resentment? Is there anger? Move towards treating others as God has treated you. And what Jesus says to us is that people who show mercy 
will, on the last day, be shown mercy. Let's pray. God, I would confess to you that uh, I am... I am certain that when people think of David Forsyth, mercy is not the first trait that comes to mind. I suspect that's true for many, if not most all of us this morning. Our lives are as open books before you and to a large extent open to others, especially those closest to us. God, give us a grace that desires to more and more resemble you, the one who has extended mercy to us, who are so undeserving. Thank you for ministering to us spiritually as well as physically and in every other way. I pray, God, that more and more that people in this community will see that Fishkill Baptist Church is a community of mercy because it's filled with merciful people. And for that I pray in Christ, our merciful Savior's name. Amen.